I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. In a world built for the able-bodied, the last 30 years has seen progress in embracing and including those who are physically disabled. But what about cultural misconceptions? We've lived in a world that doesn't tell very good stories about disabled people. When you come across a disabled person in a film or a book, they usually die or they're tragic, they're sexless. It's not surprising that that's then what comes out of us when we see a disabled body. Fear, pity, tragedy. And later, learning from your disabled child. We'll get a parent's eye view. Whenever we're in a medical setting, the biggest challenge is is that how do we get them to respect Dominic's personhood when the medical system really wants to break him down into his component parts? You know, how can we make sure that they're looking at Dominic holistically? Author Chloe Cooper-Jones confronts her own body and our assumptions about what it means to be physically disabled. That's coming up on Life Examined. The subject of beauty is something my next guest has thought a lot about. Chloe Cooper-Jones was born with a rare congenital condition that left her disabled and living in permanent and acute physical pain. She also happens to be a prolific writer, philosopher, wife, mother, and first-time author. In her new book called Easy Beauty, Cooper-Jones explores how disability impacted her identity and how beauty is teaching her something new about the way she views herself and the way she sees the world. And by beauty, Cooper Jones doesn't mean physical beauty, rather the natural beauty she finds in the world around her, in the grace of a tennis player, the work of art, or a Beyonce song. Appreciating that kind of beauty forges a kinship with others, even makes her heart beat a little bit faster. Chloe Cooper Jones's story is one of identity, belonging, and understanding, but it's also an education. Disability is very much a part of the human condition, especially as we age. And from her perspective, less pity and more beauty and grace would ease that journey. Chloe Cooper-Jones, welcome to Life Examine. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Give us a little background on on a, where this book comes from and, and some of the ideas that, that you were posing, because I know this is a very in, intimate book, one that talks about a lot of major kind of personal questions and things you've considered. So, so tell us, where, where did this start for you? Well, it began with a night at a bar in Brooklyn, and I was sitting between two friends, who both of whom were philosophers in my philosophy PhD program, And we were talking about a very famous bioethics case in which um, people talk about the ethics of giving autonomy uh, to parents who want to specifically have deaf children, deaf deaf parents who want to have deaf children. Mm. And in the course of this conversation, one of the philosophers who is an ethicist uh, made an argument that uh, disabled people should have been always detected and aborted. Um, So, you know, just a pretty classic eugenics, uh, eugenicist argument, certainly one that's been around for a very, very long time and one that's uh, completely embedded in the history of disability and in the ways in which both um, politically, socially, and medically, people have responded to disability throughout history is that it's a it's nature's failure that's a line from a um from one of the founders of the eugenics sort of principles so this wasn't a new argument to me it didn't really shock me in the way that sometimes um when i talk about it shocks other people i had lived with that sort of attitude for my whole life i think the thing that really surprised me in this moment and then sets off 
the book is um, is that I retreated in this moment into a sort of safe mental space in my mind where I could be sort of dissociated from the social pain um, of this moment. And I didn't engage, I didn't argue. And part of that's just because I wanted to have a nice, you know, calm evening with my friends having mm. a drink, but um, which I think I'm entitled to. I didn't really feel like defending uh, the worthiness of my life in that moment. But it hit me, and for the first time, that this was something I often did, uh, retreat from both physical and social pain, and that if I was going to continue to do that, then I was necessarily complicit in these dehumanizing beliefs about my body, but more importantly about disability in general. And so the book really begins with an awareness of that and then a secondary awareness of how that desire in myself that I found in myself to dissociate or retreat manifested in my son because I was modeling that for him. So he was mimicking that in his own life, um, in his own context. And I recognized a, a very high stakes um, need to change. How did this disability shape you in terms of your relationship with the outer world or the idea of otherness or that you, you know, didn't fit the mold of what we quote unquote think of as normal or something? How, how did this play into who you are now? Well, when I was younger, um, I experienced being seen constantly and I actually, you know, this is not specific to disability. I think this is hmm. it from one degree to another, or, you know, to some degree, rather, um, this is everybody's experience. And I think really thinking about what your specific version of this experience is, is really important to understanding one's place in the world. But, you know, we all walk around with these visual cues, and um, that our bodies give to other people, or our behavior, or the way we speak gives to other people. And then people have to, because we have to move through the world very quickly, um, will assign a narrative based on what they're seeing or what they're hearing. Unfortunately, with disability, those narratives are often really dehumanizing. People's mm. first thoughts about disability often are to feel pity, to see disability as tragic in nature, to see disability as inherently lowering the value of someone's entire existence, which is the basis of a eugenicist argument and my friend's argument at this bar. It's also, I think, especially for me, because, you know, partially because I'm female, partially because I'm very short, partially because I walk in this unusual side to side gait, I'm visually read as weak or precarious or in need of someone's constant assistance. People are always underestimating my abilities. People think that I'm very childlike and innocent. Sometimes people speak to me with a with a like a really um, exaggerated higher tone that you would with a child or um, or a puppy or something, which is always sort of funny when that happens. Mm. And so those narratives you you live with them because every time you go out in public, you're seeing those narratives reflected back to you over and over and over and over again. It's impossible not to internalize the the gaze, the immediate narrative gaze of the other, 
to a certain extent. And so I, of course, internalized a lot of these ideas about myself and thought for a long time that the only way to mitigate these ill-fitting narratives about me was to pretend that I didn't have a body and that I wasn't disabled. So I didn't ever talk about disability. I felt a lot of internal shame around my disability. I didn't want to talk about it. People would say things to me like, oh, I just, you know, I'm so used to you that I totally forget that you have a disability at all. And I would hear that when I was younger as a good thing. And I would think, oh, good. Now finally they can see like some real quote unquote me. Of course, to, to feel that way is an act of self erasure because I am disabled. I'm importantly disabled. It's a huge part of who I am and how this real me, whatever that is, is shaped. It's not the entirety of my story, but it's not something to be cut out of um, this concept of self. And I think that the bigger thing that I think is so important when we're thinking about these narratives of disability is that every single living human with a body is on a continuum of disability. You're all, every listener, every person you meet, we're all on this continuum together. We're all using assistive technology to figure out how to move our fragile bodies through this very difficult world, whether you use glasses or you use a cane or you use just sneakers to protect your feet when you're walking across the street, like we're all, or a car to move you through the world faster than your body can move you. We're all in a relationship to our own physical selves being at the mercy of a world that isn't always um, perfectly suited for, for our abilities. And we're all using these assistive technologies or we're all figuring out um, ways of troubleshooting being a body in the world. My troubleshooting maybe just looks a little different than yours, but or maybe it's hard for people to really think about the fact that if they get to live long enough, they might be in a body like mine that experiences pain or has to move a little slower or has difficulty on the stairs. And maybe people don't want to think about that. But disability is, is an identity that nobody is exempt from. And the fact that I wanted to act as though it didn't exist. Um, I wasn't, it, not only am I not doing myself any favors, but I'm not doing anybody else any favors um, because I'm helping other people pretend that their own relationship to disability doesn't exist rather than being a voice that could kind of help, I don't know, instigate ho- hopefully useful conversations yeah. around, around it. I want to explore what you said just just a minute or so ago. This idea of this projection of pity on those who are disabled, or that somehow they're leading a life that is not one of value, or that we um, again apply this kind of otherness to them. And help help me sit with this and talk about your experiences being disabled, what it feels like to receive that, and how you may want to clear up misconceptions about this idea of looking down upon those or thinking that their life couldn't be as rich as those that are able-bodied. Well, I think it's 
it's just interesting the way that we get taught to think about and build categories around difficulty that we experience in life. Hmm. Um, so one thing is we often get taught that we should avoid difficulty or that difficulty should have a negative valence, that we should protect ourselves and the people we love from obstacles or challenges, that we should remove obstacles from the lives of our children, um, that we should look for ways to life hack all of these things that we're going to come, come across. I mean, there's just endless industries dedicated to saving us from pain and suffering and striving. Um, and I think that for me, that was just never an option. So I have a really different relationship to pain or to challenge or to difficulty that relationship is one of tremendous discovery of my own agency, self-sufficiency, and resilience. I think that's something that really unites the disabled experiences, which can, you know, dis disability is such a huge umbrella term for so many different lived, um, like lived lives. But I think one thing that really unites the disabled experience is ingenuity, resilience, and troubleshooting um, on such a great scale. I think that's so cool. I'm so proud of that myself. And I think that often when people see my body, they just see struggle and they code that as negative and they code that as unfortunate or tragic, and they code that as something they don't want to experience in their lives. But they're already experiencing it. Like every single one of us is involved in daily pain management. We call it hunger. And so the pain management that I experience is very related to the pain management that everyone else experiences. But we don't code hunger as inherently a pitiable thing. In fact, we create whole cultures around feeding that pain. We create aesthetic experiences around around assuaging that pain. I love a beautiful meal because I get to to tackle the burden of my hunger pains with something that can be uh, like a, an experience of art. You know, a great meal can be as aesthetic as as a great piece of music. Um, also, there are all these hidden pains that that people experience hidden struggles that are coded really differently, that we don't see as pitiable. We see them as part of the human experience. And yet with disability, there's so much that I think people are, are just so trained to think um, by the fact that, you know, we've just lived in, in a world that doesn't tell very good stories about disabled people. When you come across a disabled person in a film or a book, um, they usually die at the end. They die so that their able-bodied counterparts can experience life more, or they're tragic figures, they're sexless, they rarely have agency. And if that's the stories that we're being told over and over and over and over, and I include myself in that we, because those are the narratives I was told about disability over and over and over, you know, it's not, 
it's not surprising that that's then what comes out of us when we see a disabled body. Fear, pity, tragedy, um, and a removal of agency. I also want to explore this, this really big theme that, that you're writing about, which is beauty. And, and I think about what a beauty-obsessed world we live in. I, and, you know, I'm, I'm a man, but I can imagine as a woman, I mean, the amount of pressure, the amount of, of uh, cosmetics, the amount of industries that are built around one version of beauty, of physical beauty, the amount of Western arts that has also portrayed that. So maybe begin to explore this with me a bit about how beauty is such a powerful concept to explore in this conversation of disability. Um, why don't you take it from there? I'm curious on your thoughts. Well, I think there's a really important baseline distinction to be made when we're talking about beauty. I think the most common thing that people hear when they hear that word beauty is they're thinking about what you're, what you, you know, all the things that you just said, physical beauty, beauty standards, the way that um, maybe especially women, but obviously men as well are, are marketed um, their inadequacies back to them. Uh, you know, imagined and made up inadequacies are, are turned into marketing tools. Um, that's that's a really important sort of subject and version or subset of, of this I- really big idea of beauty. But I think the form of beauty that I'm much more concerned with, specifically in this book, is aesthetic beauty. And what I just mean by that is beauty that arrives... Um, to our senses. So right now I'm sitting in my apartment in Brooklyn and it's this beautiful sunny day and I'm looking at this tree across the street and its leaves are changing in a way that creates in me, just looking at these beautiful leaves shifting, um, is creating in me an aesthetic response. And the aesthetic response that I'm having is physical. Like, I feel a little bit better. My heart is beating a little bit faster. I feel sort of a a tightness in my chest. I feel the hairs on the back of my neck go up. This is why I like going upstate New York and looking at, you know, natural beauty all around me. I feel that way too when a really great song comes on and suddenly my body has a, a physiological response, a desire to dance or to move or to cry if it's a sad song. I feel that way in the presence of certain paintings and not others. And that bodily sensory response to beauty that we're capable of perceiving in the world around us, that's a different kind of beauty that's outside of of human beauty and uh, it's not exclu- it doesn't exclude human beauty, but it's not tied to what you know a magazine would tell us is is beautiful it's about really a connection and 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 philosophers have been talking about this you know and and writing about it um since socrates so or or before actually um so plotinus a, a philosopher that i write about in easy beauty says that when you know what is that mysterious feeling this this thrill this you know prickling Um, of the hairs on the back of my neck when I'm looking at these fall leaves changing. 
Um, he says it's this bit of ourselves, our soul that we're seeing in the world and we're recognizing a little bit of, of us-ness in the world around us. And we're feeling this really strong moment of kinship. And I think that feeling, it, I don't know if that resonates with you or if that makes sense, but I feel like that is the feeling um, that has carried me through my whole life. It's the feeling that drives me to read obsessively. It's a feeling that takes me to the movies or takes me to an art gallery or takes me to an opera is the chance to possibly uh, experience a little moment of kinship in the world. And so much of this book is about me feeling so isolated from the world through, again, people's bad narratives, through my own physical pain, through a desire to separate or dissociate myself from real life, either because other people told me I was already separated through, through marginalizing me, but through my collaboration with that marginalization. But art and this specific type of beauty, it never fails to pull me into the world, out of myself, but, but closer to other minds um, or to the natural world that we share. And Plato thought that that type of beauty was on par with truth and virtue. I mean, that it was a, it was a form of virtue. And other philosophers have been trying to figure out what is this thing, this feeling that we get when we're having like really profound aesthetic pleasure. And can it change us? You know, that's Iris Murdoch's question. And for me, the big change that I needed was to desire to be one in, among a world of others. And nothing has done that for me more than, than the kind of pleasure that I get from beauty in, in art. Explore that feeling of kinship through beauty. And, and why, why was it so, maybe say more about why it was so important to you, and mm. uh, in particular if it relates to who you are and, and the disability you, you've had, or keep going, because I, I do want to understand mm. this really closely. So, Well, I think that, so one thing that's really specific to my experience of disability is this feeling as though you are existing at a remove from a realer or more vibrant world that everybody around you seems to have access to mm. that you're not able to access. So this can be this, you know, one example of this is, um, there's something about my body that seems to disqualify me in a lot of people's eyes from the experience of romantic love. Mm. Mm -hmm. There's something about my body and my disability that makes me um, disqualified from sex and sexual agency. Then the biggest thing is that I was told I could never get pregnant. So my doctors were literally disqualifying me with no medical basis uh, from the experience of, of ever becoming a mother. Now, this turned out to be false. Uh, and I had, a, I had a son. And it was a huge surprise to everybody around us. And what we realized was these doctors were telling me I would never get pregnant because they didn't think that I would ever have 
sex or have a romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. And when I was pregnant, people would come up to me on the street and just say, what happened to you? And I'd be like, the standard thing, <laughs> just the basic standard baby making thing happened yeah. um, with my husband. And so if you're constantly being seen as somehow, it's it's not just being othered, it's less than human. And outside of some of the really big, uh, what we might call like big human touchstones like love, like desire, um, like becoming a parent or at least getting to make that choice for yourself one way or another, then you just feel excluded on so many levels from, from the sensation of really being in, in the world. This is why this feeling of kinship in art and in the natural world has been so important for me because it's been these moments where I've felt this kinship where I feel tugged, sometimes with gratitude and sometimes against my will out of this space of marginalization and into the messiness of actual lived life. So when I'm reading a beautiful passage of poetry about longing and I feel that same longing in myself and then I feel the similarities between my own singular mind and the poet's mind, who may be long dead, centuries dead, but who has seen the world in the same way that I'm seeing it, that moment necessarily communicates to me, I'm not other, I'm not outside of this feeling, I'm not inherently um, kept from this feeling of longing. It's only a social construct that keeps me from it. And I know that every time I read something about love or or power or agency or self-possession from another source and I see myself in it. Mm. So that became a powerful antidote. Art has become such a powerful antidote in my life and beauty in general um, to this really limiting and othering narrative that I get from so many other sources. I think that was really well said. And I think there's something I think really amazing about the idea that art, the best art or beauty doesn't judge back. It, it, it welcomes us in, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's the world itself. It's the people in it that do the projection of, of what we are not or how we are less than. But, but art, is, art is the door that is open that allows us to come in and find ourselves and be with ourselves. And I, I, I think that's a really beautiful concept and well said. Well, I mean, the, the cliche thing to say is that it makes me feel less alone. I think the more powerful thing for my life is it, is it shows me a path to life with other people and to not feel like I'm outside of, um, of life. And so this book becomes a way to seek out those experiences and see if they can change my orientation both to myself and to other people with the goal always being that then if I can shift, I can reflect that back to my son because that's that's the real stakes here. I mean, I can live whatever life, but like, you know, I can be a lonely person, that's fine, but I can't create that loneliness unnecessarily for my child um, or I don't want to because I love him. So, 
every chapter of my book finds me in a different city. You know, it's very much a travel log more than anything else or a travel philosophical travel log. Uh, it's about art mm. <laughs> and, and tennis and all these other things. Um, but every chapter of the book finds me in a different city seeking out an aesthetic experience, whether it's with a sculpture at a Beyonce concert, watching Roger Federer play tennis at a Verdi opera, and then ultimately home uh, in the hopes of just constantly capturing that feeling of kinship and letting it tug me uh, into a new state of being that might might benefit my life and, and more importantly, my, my son's life. My guest has been Chloe Cooper-Jones, philosophy professor, journalist, and the author, most recently, of Easy Beauty. Chloe, thank you so much for sharing part of your book with us today. I really appreciated it. Thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you. Still to come, raising a disabled child. We'll hear one parent's desire to let his son define disability for himself instead of letting the world define it for him. Also, what's your experience with disability? How have your views shifted on what it means to be disabled? And are you fearful of losing your physical abilities later in life? We'd love for you to share your story with our Facebook community. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined, or go onto Facebook and search for KCRW Life Examined. We'll be right back after this short break. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this is Life Examined on KCRW. Stay close. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard author and philosopher Chloe Cooper-Jones explain how seeking out beautiful experiences, a sculpture, or a Beyonce concert has helped to shift her mindset towards her own identity and her physical disability. So what are the challenges for a parent raising a disabled child? How can parents empower their child to be defined for who they are instead of who they are not? How does society embrace a more equitable and inclusive approach to those with disabilities? Joining me next is Shaylin Singh, Assistant Professor in the Department of Occupational, Workforce, and Leadership Studies at Texas State University. Shaylin Singh, welcome to Life Examined. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I want to start with uh, the story of, of Dom. This is your son. Dominic is his full name. But um, you've spoken and, and written really eloquently about him. And, and why don't you tell us kind of who he is as your child and, and, and what's his life like? Absolutely. So Dominic is 10 years old. Um, he's a wonderful kid. He, he is incredibly independent, incredibly mischievous, incredibly opinionated. Um, he, he, uh, Dominic was born in September of 2012, and, and he has a, a type of cerebral palsy called polymicrogyria. Um, and basically, that when Dom was born, my wife had a, a something that was called a, something that was called cytomegalovirus, which caused which caused a, the equivalent of a pediatric stroke in utero, mm -hmm. um, which caused Dominic's brain damage. So um, as a result, you know, Dom is uh, non-speaking. Um, he require you know relies on us for most of his daily needs and whatnot. Uh, we found out when he was about five or six years old that he's also autistic. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of Dom's, uh, that, that's Dom's diagnosis in a nutshell, but, you know, he's just a, a wonderful child. He, he is a sweet kid. Um, he's got his preferences. You know, I'm an only child, so I don't know much about birth order stuff, but I read a little bit about it. And he is your stereotypical middle child that mm -hmm. really just wants to be by himself. He's incredibly introverted unless you know him really well. 
Um, but he's just a wonderful kid. He, he's he's just awesome in every way. Yeah. So I, I think there's this this narrative that runs uh, through our culture, which is when you find out that a child will have uh, disabilities, there's this idea that maybe you would grieve the child you're not going to get, or we all mm-hmm. want what we think is the perfectly healthy child, whatever that means. I think all these terms are used maybe really unhelpfully, but talk to me about that. I, I'm sure it's something that's been uh, gone through your mind before. Yeah. Every disability diagnosis is slightly different. Um, from the parent perspective. So for, for our perspective, whenever we got Dime's diagnosis, we got the information and we went home and, you know, for the next couple of weeks, uh, admittedly, we were pretty sad and we were pretty lost really. Yeah. So we would put our, our kids to bed and we kind of jump on our laptops and jump on our iPads just to research and get as much information as we possibly could, because we, you know, we really had no idea what to expect. I think as a parent, you have a you have a kind of a sense of the direction that your life is going to take you because you've seen other people parent, you remember the way you were parented, um, and so you can kind of get a sense of what your where your life is going to go. But when you have a child with disabilities, that pathway becomes much less clear. Um, so you know, my partner and I, we were we were pretty sad for a good amount of time, and then eventually we just kind of looked at each other and just made the decision to stop being sad mm. and. You know, really, the, what we kind of realized was that we didn't lose anything with Dominic because he was always that same child from birth. We, we didn't lose anything at all. We just got to know him. And if anything, the only thing that we lost was a sense of predictability, like I mentioned earlier about the pathway our life would take us. Um, and that's not his fault. You know, nobody nobody owes you a predictable pathway for parenting. I've got two other neurotypical children. You know, I don't know. I don't necessarily know what their pathway in life is going to look like. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I the you know, majority of the literature and the majority of the, the, the stuff about parenting is, is parenting a child with disability is framed from that loss-based, grieving-based perspective. And you know, every parent is going to go through their experience a little bit differently. But for us, you know, what we had to get past was this sense of the sense that we knew what was upcoming. And I think that, you know, we're kind of at this place right now where we are, we're a little more comfortable with ambiguity and kind of figuring stuff out along the way um, and really, you know, balancing out a focus on the future with just trying to, you know, be in the moment and be where we are right now and not and not think too much about where our life may have taken us because it doesn't matter where it may have taken us because that's not where it took us. You know, it's we are here right now and we're, we're happy with where we're at. Mm. Yeah, I think there's something that's really important and kind of profound about that idea that you didn't lose anything. In fact, maybe the only thing you lost was some kind of false projection about where your life may have gone. uh, You know, what is a quote-unquote normal future look like of predictability or how you would imagine you and your family looking? So I think that's kind of a really important thing to recognize. That has nothing to do with a child, but really it just has to do with you and your partner. Right. And, you know, the other thing that we needed to do, too, was that we, we recognized that that sense of loss that we felt about it, the predictability and whatnot, we couldn't project that onto Dominic, nor could we project it onto our other children. Like my Dominic is 10 years old. My older son will turn 12 in a couple months. And we had them you know, close in age because we wanted them to be close. We wanted them to have a strong relationship. Um, and you know that was one of the things that we kind of went through the experience of at when 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 as Dom grew older and my my sons kind of grew we they didn't grow up in your your stereotypical normal close knit brother relationship as we at I wouldn't even say stereotypical but just as what we expected um, but even that like 
I don't know what it's like to have a disabled sibling, but I do know that my older son loves his younger brother dearly. Mm. And it's not that he's not, he didn't miss out on anything at all. He just had a different experience than what he was expecting, you know, and different is not necessarily less than. And, and, and so our big thing that we tried to make sure to do was to make sure that we weren't going to project however we were feeling onto anybody else and have that result in a, a lesser experience for anybody else in our family. You know, our, whatever we were feeling, we needed to own it and, 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 and not move past it, but internalize it and be okay with it and recognize that we still have, as parents, we still have a job to do, which is to raise this child in a happy, loving household, raise him to be as confident in his life and as confident in who he is as he possibly can be, and just have a happy life. You know, mm -hmm. that's basically what we kind of realized that we needed to do. How do you feel about just the label um, disabled? Because, you know, dis is the, just that, that's a, like a negation of able, right? It's as if there's being able is the norm and dis is not. So I, yeah. how do you feel about the term being used? You know, it's funny. I, I uh, um, whenever Dom got his diagnosis, I kind of went through that experience of really trying to define what, really trying to figure out what what is he and what do I want to call him? Because, like you said, you know, he's not disabled. He's not broken by any stroke of the imagination. I don't necessarily know that I like the term special needs because, you know, all three of my kids have unique and special needs based on their personalities and based on who they are. Um, and so I, I really struggled with that for a little while. Um, honestly, what helped me out was reading a lot of was was reading stuff by disabled folks. I think that's one thing in the kind of the the supply chain of getting a disability diagnosis that parents don't really ever get the opportunity to do is mm. to interact or learn from actually disabled people and, and to read their perspectives. Um, and one of the things that I kind of realized was in, in reading that stuff was how was how much power the word disabled has. You know, all of the rights that Dominic is granted by the federal government through for his schooling, for whatever the case may be, are defined by that term disabled. And so, you know, we could we could look at that word as as, as having an, a negative contradiction solely for like the I guess the etymology of the word or whatever you want to say. But, you know, at the end of the day, that that disabled label in some sense um, ends up being something that gives him the rights that he has. And so it's got a lot of power to it, too. Mm. Um, and, you know, I guess uh, so. So now, you know, I think it just depends on the context in which I'm having the conversation. Like, I think that you know, disabled is a language is a word that I certainly use whenever I'm describing Dominic to other people or whenever I'm trying to articulate his diagnosis to people who don't necessarily know him. Being disabled, it's a it's a absolutely a defining characteristic of Dominic, and certainly a defining characteristic of our family. But I think it's good to know that it's not the only defining characteristic of Dominic. Like he's more than that, but that is part of who he is, and that's okay. Yeah, talk to me about the the process of navigating then all these administrative needs, or what it's like to you know have to parent someone in a world that, just as you say, was designed for neurotypical people. Yeah. Um, so with with Dominic, you know, with, with Dominic at the age that he's at, it really is kind of localized to a couple of different systems trying to navigate through the schools and trying to navigate through uh, interacting with care providers and doctors and stuff like that. And, and it's a that's a tough spot to be in, because, again, those systems, too. And this is the way that I think I think in terms of organizational systems, because that's the way that my mind works. And that's kind of my area of expertise. Um, you know, these systems, like I mentioned earlier, they're not built 
for parents of kids with disabilities in mind. They're not built by these folks. And so I think that they're all well-intentioned. You know, I don't, I don't challenge anybody's intentions, but I think that they're not necessarily built to facilitate that kind of expertise. And so, you know, I guess parents of kids with disabilities, or I can't even speak from a larger sense. I'll just talk about me. You know, my job whenever I walk into these contexts is to make sure that I'm advocating for Dominic in the best way that I possibly can. The language that I have to use to advocate on, on his behalf really depends on the environment that I'm in. And so if I am in an IEP meeting, an individualized educational plan meeting with the school in order to advocate for additional resources or advocate for additional you know, therapy through school, whatever the case may be, then I have to make sure that I have a really, really good understanding of um, really, really good understanding of what special education law looks like, how to navigate those particular areas, how to do those particular things, how to make sure that I'm using language that is going to get my point across. It's almost mm. like code switching in some sense. Yeah. You know, whenever we're in a medical setting, the biggest challenge is, is that how do we get them to respect Dominic's personhood when the medical system really wants to break him down into his component parts and service whatever individual component part they're looking at? You know, how can we make sure that they're looking at Dominic holistically and not just trying to separate out his physical well-being from his cognitive well-being to his emotional well-being. And so there's a level of like, I guess, strategic thinking that maybe goes into that stuff, too. Um, and, and, and I would say that's the hard part. You know, that's the hard part for us as parents is how do we make sure that we're doing everything in our power to be and do everything that we can to make sure that we're advocating for him successfully? There's been so much attention over the last few years on diversity, inclusion, equity, and um, all, all finally, I think, given the space, at least that it deserves. If not, it needs a lot more. Do you find that folks like Dom uh, that that live with disabilities, do, do you think they are advocated enough or that this this space of diversity includes folks like him? Um, I think we're getting better I, I think that we're certainly better than where we used to be and probably not where we should be. Um, I think that we're starting to recognize that a disability is just part of the human experience. You know, I think that we're starting to recognize that. I think that we're starting to understand that we need to listen to disabled people a little bit more as we make decisions and starting to recognize, as you mentioned, um, recognize, as you mentioned, that disability is part of the diversity experience. You know, we can't have diversity without thinking about the needs and experiences of disabled folks. Um, I, I think the challenge that I have is like when we're talking about these inclusive spaces and we're talking about including children with disabilities or whatever, whoever we're talking about, that I guess the concern that I have is who are we creating these spaces for and, and, and what is the benefit to the person who is disabled, you know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, so I, the, when I think about that, I think about like when we put Dominic into an inclusive classroom, we talk often about the value being that, you know, there's absolutely value that disabled kids, whenever they're educated alongside their neurotypical peers, they have a better experience. And we also talk a lot about the fact that neurotypical kids, whenever they have the opportunity to interact with a disabled person, then, you know, they, they get to grow, they get to, they get to change as a result of that experience. But it's always the one disabled kid within a larger room full of able-bodied children. You know, it's never the other way around. We never think about what it might be like to put a able-bodied child in a room full of disabled kids to think about what diversity would look like from that lens. Mm. You know, we also, I often think too about 
I'm a big sports fan, and so I, I, I see a lot of these moments where the disabled kid, you know, runs in a touchdown or, you know, the disabled kid gets asked to prom or something, and they create these beautiful moments that for that, you know, for that brief moment, that child gets to be celebrated in, in but I think about like, I guess the way that I think about that is what happens the day before and what happens the day after, mm. you know, do we go back to normal? Do, do we go back to what it was before? Was that just one moment that was built for the experience of the neurotypical folks just to feel good about the fact that they included the kid for one day? Um, so I think that, but here's the thing, all of that stuff is great, but we are now in position where we can be having those conversations. And I don't want to discard all of the work that got us to this point to where we can think about well, what does good actually look like? You know, because it took us a long time to get to the point where we were even just okay. And, and I think that we're making progress in the right direction. I, I just want to make sure that we're continuing to make progress and continuing to rethink what progress really looks like. One thing I appreciate about the way that you talk about this is I think you, you really uh, both understand the day-to-day, but also kind of the larger philosophic questions. And and I, I think you may have said this or, or alluded to it, that in some ways, each of us deals with our own disabilities, whether they're large or small, that there are, you know, even if I am technically able-bodied, my, my challenges would be more in the mental health arena, frankly, you know? And I think that you, you've made this point, and I wonder if you could say a little bit more about it, because I think it, it's an interesting perspective on the conversation. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, disability is the most ubiquitous part of the human condition. You know, every single one of us is is either disabled or will become disabled in some way, shape, or form as we age. You know, we will become it will become difficult for us to do things. You mm-hmm. know, um, I have really, really terrible vision. Like my uh, really bad eyes. I, you know, were really you know, pretty strong prescriptions and stuff like that. But that is something that is easily accommodated on my lens. The world doesn't necessarily need to do anything to adjust for my poor vision. Um, and I think that like when we are, when we oftentimes localize this notion of disability from a theoretical perspective, from, you know, kind of an esoteric perspective, inability to do something, we, we situate it in a particular person. We don't necessarily think about it in terms of how the world is constructed that might lead to barriers and challenges for people to be able to do stuff. Um, and so, and I think that that doesn't just necessarily manifest itself in, you know, dealing in, 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 in concepts related to people with disabilities. I think it also manifests itself in how we deal with the elderly, you know, how we, how we, how we handle the entire lifespan. You know, I think we're seeing a lot of that right now as far as, you know, elder care and, and, and what role do the elderly play in our society? The, the, the world is built for and by able-bodied folks, but we don't necessarily account for the fact that every single one of us at some point in time is gonna lose some some level of our capabilities and in, in, in how well we can interact with the environment becomes an us issue, not the environment issue. It seems like there's gotta be some interplay there. You know, it seems like there's gotta be some give and take or something like that. Um, but that's really the, the way that we look at, at at Dom is that, again, like I mentioned earlier, in our house, he's not my disabled kid. You know, he's not my other two children's disabled brother. He's just Dominic. You know, he is just who he is. When we we built a house because we moved closer to family because, you know, one of the other things that they don't tell you in having a disabled kid 101 is that childcare is impossible to come by. Mm-hmm. So we moved closer to family to, to, to get a little more support and we built a house and, you know, it was natural for us to do things like build wider doorways and wider hallways and a zero entry shower 
And it wasn't just one of those things where we were thinking about, well, what does disability accommodations look like in this context? It's just like, no, well, that's what Dominic needs and it works for everybody else. Why wouldn't we do that? Of course it makes sense, you know? And so, you know, I, I think it's just kind of one of those things where, where, like I mentioned earlier, when we are in this house, we are good. We're cool. You know, we've got we've we put intentional thought into what this space looks like. But when we get out into the deeper, the bigger picture world, we kind of realize that it's not built for disabled folks. Mm-hmm. So, and perhaps just uh, on a final point, I think it's important for us to realize when we think about what a good life is, what an arc of a full life is. It can include anybody in any situation. Our judgment is our own judgment. Dom has his fulfilling life and we have ours no matter our disabilities. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would I would absolutely agree with that. And and I think that like I think he would probably say the same thing. I mean, he's getting he's a ten year old kid, so I'm sure that there's some angst in there about what he's not <laughs> being given or how parents are annoying him or something like that. But yeah, I, I think that too often, you know, we look at we as able-bodied folks, we look at disabled people and we think about what our life would be in their situation. Mm. We can't really understand that because we are thinking about that in terms of things being taken away from us. You know, and, and naturally when you think about somebody else's experience and you you say, well, I can no longer do this, of course there's gonna be a, you're gonna automatically go to a place, well, that's less than my experience right now, but that's not really fair. You know, that that's not, I don't, we, we do that for disabled people, but I don't necessarily look at like an NFL football player and say, man, my life would be a heck of a lot better if I was 6'3", 240 and could run a, you know, could run a 4440. I don't think about that. Um, but we do that with disabled folks. I think that there is a difference between, you know, there's this notion of cognitive empathy versus affective empathy. You know, affective empathy is I want to understand how somebody feels and feelings are malleable. Feelings are, you know, feelings are really kind of a, a soft thing. Cognitive empathy is when we're really trying to understand somebody's lived experience in context. That we're not, you know, it's less about how they feel, but more about what their day-to-day experience looks like. I think too often when we think about the concept of disability, we, we, we frame it from that affective empathy perspective that we toss in feelings. Well, it, it feels sad. I feel this. I feel bad. But if we tweak that a little bit and actually start thinking about what cognitive empathy looks like, I think we'd start thinking about, you know, there's no reason that there's not a ramp here. There's no reason that this doctor's office isn't better built um, for wheelchairs and stuff like that. There is no reason that there's not a changing table in an accessible bathroom. I mean, we start thinking about what does this actually mean? What does this actually look like? Instead of just stopping at that place of, well, I feel bad. And so, yeah, to, you know, to your point, like, I, I hope, I, I think we are, you know, I, I hope that we are providing my son the best life that he could possibly have. You know, I, I want him to have the best life that any 10-year-old could ever have in the same way that I want that for my 12-year-old son and my 7-year-old daughter, you know, and it's not the best life a disabled child could have. No, it's the best life that he can possibly have. My goal is for him to be the best him that he can possibly be, whatever that looks like, you know. That's what I'm going to try and do is just to get him to be the best him he can possibly be. I've been speaking with Shailen Singh, assistant professor in the Department of Occupational Workforce and Leadership Studies at Texas State University. Shailen, thank you for sharing these stories and your thoughts. We really appreciate it. Hey, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate your time, too. 
All right, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody, and I hope you enjoyed today's discussion of living with a disability. What specifically resonated with you? Is there something you wanted to hear more about? We'd love for you to chime in on our Facebook group. KCRW.com slash lifeexamine is how you find it. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.